the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. In this episode, we're lucky to be joined by a brilliant writer, marketing consultant, and researcher in Texas. An armchair sleuth, avid reader, and world traveler, her heroes are Tina, Flo, and Alice. She's a hero of mine, and I'm willing to bet she'll be one of your heroes in the Vortex, too. Enjoy this episode with my good friend, Pat Boland. Pat, how did you first hear about D.B. Cooper? Actually, I remember 1971. So I first heard about D.B. Cooper probably watching Walter Cronkite. Uh, I remember as a kid hearing almost every night on the news another plane was being hijacked by some Cuban revolutionaries and it, it became so prevalent that it was literally the butt of late night jokes. Um, then D.B. Cooper and I, I can't say I was really into it or anything. I was a little kid. I remember watching the Unsolved Mysteries episode when it first came out. I think what got me thinking about him again was really Mad Men, right? When the, the uh, theory was that Don was Dan, Don Draper was Dan Cooper. And I was like really into that. I was reading all about it. I was so disappointed on the last episode that it wasn't him. And then time went by. And I think during COVID, I just did a deep dive. I ordered a bunch of books. Can't remember if the first book I read was either Skyjack or Bruce's book, but I remember reading those two first and watching a lot of the old documentaries, you know, the Netflix one came out a couple years ago. And then I found the Uber Facebook page and somehow convinced my poor husband that we were flying out to Vancouver to CooperCon, which took a little convincing, but, um, and then that, that was it for me. I mean, it's, it's been downhill ever since. What do you think really got you sucked into the vortex? You know, I wish I knew that this is such an odd case in the sense that there's no need for closure or justice for families. Or, I mean, this isn't, you know, a terrible murder or a Golden State Killer or Ted Bundy or uh, Madeline McCann or just some awful case involving children or young women. I think I always wanted to be a, a, a detective as a kid. I used to read Nancy Drew books and watch, always have been really into not so much true crime, but detective shows, you know, the old FBI and Rockford Files and all those kind of shows. So I think this was my real life opportunity to play detective. It definitely is allowing a lot of people to do that. Right. So we're living vicariously as I'll just tell you a funny story. When I was a kid, we used to watch the FBI all the time with 
Efren Zimlis Jr. I don't know if you've ever seen those old reruns. Oh, yeah. And I remember I asked my mom if girls could be FBI agents. And my mom's answer was, well, I think sometimes they might need ladies in case the suspect runs into the women's restroom. And that was her whole, I mean, if that doesn't really epitomize 1971, I mean, the only way I could really be an FBI agent so I could grab suspects in the ladies room. <laughs> um, as the Virginia Slims commercials of the Times used to say, we've come a long way, baby, right? Um, so I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm being a detective, I guess, I'll admit it. Give me my junior detective badge. Well, if we're already talking about women in the vortex, let's get to it right away. Why do you think that this case appeals way more to men than it does to women? Well, we all know the stock answer to that is that all you guys want to be D.B. Cooper, kind of like y'all want to be James Bond. I don't know any women who want to be James Bond. Um, the whole idea that a man is possibly running away from his dull existence and doing something so completely audacious as jumping out of an airplane with $200,000. I think that appeals to men. I just don't think it appeals to women. Um, I don't think women, generally speaking, leave their families. I think guys are more into, again, in general, are more into things like airplanes and parachuting. And obviously that's changed somewhat, but I I just think this is this is a guy thing. It's a boys club. And I do think that women who have gotten into the case, and there are a lot more, just really looking at the uh, Facebook group, there's a lot more women now than there were when I joined. And a lot of them are coming up with some pretty smart things. I don't think they're always taken as seriously. And some of them have shared that with me. They feel like a lot of the guys have not been um, as accepting of their ideas. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know what that means. I say it's a boys club. That's how I look at it. Well, I don't, I don't think it's just that, you know, because they're a lady, they're, other people aren't accepting to their idea. I mean, go look at some old posts on the drop zone. It didn't matter what well, sex no, you I, were. They were. I agree that. And, and maybe, maybe we, and maybe we all are a little bit uh, sensitive to that subject. Um, I know I certainly, again, being one of the older people on the, in the group that uh, maybe I'm a little more sensitive to that. Cause I did grow up in a time period where my mother would tell me that was the only way I could be in the FBI. <laughs> right. So Maybe I am a little more sensitive to guys thinking I'm not as smart as they are or whatever. Um, I also think this is an analytical case. I mean, women, I think, are more drawn to women are naturally more empathetic. I mean, they're mothers. You know, the idea that a child or a young girls would be murdered by a Ted Bundy or whoever. I think w women tend to be drawn more to those type of cases. This is, I mean, analyzing flight paths, you know, reading radio transcripts. I do think this tends to be more of a guy thing. I mean, men think differently with different parts of their brain. That's okay. But I think that's why women have a lot to offer 
to this case because we do look, look at things differently. Um, and I think a lot of the men are starting to realize that. Well, let's jump right into the next most controversial topic. Is the flight path accurate? I do think it's accurate, but I'm going to just throw out there that I think there's always room for human error. I think there's some really, really credible witnesses, one in particular I know I've spoken with, who would put the plane somewhere else early on. But I don't think that changes where Cooper jumped. So that's really the important part of the flight path. I mean, if they veered a little bit one way or the other along the way, it's not changing anything materially. Basically, I think it's correct, but there have been some historical incidents of people misreading the radar with some pretty severe consequences. But in general, yes, I think I think Cooper landed somewhere in the general Vancouver area, whether it's orchards or battleground or whatever all those little towns are. Um, I don't think he landed at Tina Bar. I, I don't believe in the Western flight path, if that's your question. But you think it could have gone a little bit different direction earlier in the flight, like Clay well, I No, no. I, I, I do think there are some people who are quite credible who... What's really strange is that the news reports, and we don't have those contemporary contemporaneous news reports, but they were literally broadcasting on television. Oh, by the way, the plane is right over, and then they were telling you exactly where it was, which seemed really strange to me until I found out that they were doing that with, I guess, McCoy's hijacking. So people were literally running outside to look for the plane. So some people think they saw it over their house. I don't know. That's a tough one. Or like when people say, you know, they saw someone walking down Lewis River Road that night. I sort of tend to think that they come to those memories after hearing the story, you know, like, oh, there was that plane last night. Oh, yeah, I remember seeing that when they might not have come forward with that if you didn't tell them it was the Stevie Cooper plane. Well, the Lewis River Road story is interesting in that the young woman, actually it was her father who reported it to the FBI, and then she was later contacted. They didn't report that till a number of months after, which that's very curious to me. On the other hand, from people I know who've been on that road, nobody's walking down that road <laughs> at night. Um, it's just a, a busy road. It sounds like it doesn't have much of a shoulder or there's a lot of brush or a ditch or something. I don't know if you've been there. I haven't been there. Oh, I've definitely um, driven Lewis River Road a million times. And yeah. you're 100% right. There is no shoulder. Uh, it's very windy at night. There's not going to be much traffic on it at all. So it it would be unusual then. It'd be unusual now to see someone walking on that road, especially at night. Well, and so where was this guy going? Now, I know the father elaborated on this story later in a news report that he was carrying, that this mystery man was carrying like a parcel or something. I don't, that was not initially reported. Um, 
the times were different. The young lady kind of gave a later time, I believe, than the father did. I mean, but he he kind of got it third hand through his wife or something. But, you know, a lot of strange things happened in that, you know, there was the Lewis River Road. There was the cabin that was broken into, apparently, right, the same night where some canned goods were taken, which does sound like maybe a homeless person or something. I was, I wonder if they were looking for a phone, you know, and then we have now the store robbery, which we've decided is, was really not the Heisen store, but it was this Casey's Corner store that if you look at, if you map it out, I mean, they're, they're just in a straight line, all these things, very strange. I mean, if you were looking for a phone back then, I, I, go break into a business. I mean, there couldn't have been very many pay phones, you know, where? Out on the road? I mean, probably not. Um, so where would you find a phone? You'd find one in someone's home or in a store that was closed. And the odd things that were taken out of that store, Polaroid film, what's up with that, right? But we're also now sort of just looking at because we don't have the drop zone exactly pinned down to he landed in this exact field right here. So now we're looking at like five or six different cities at all of the crimes committed that night, thinking, could this be Cooper? I could probably look at the police report in my town from last night, and there'd be enough things that I could pinpoint to something else that had nothing to do with it. Um, I'm just finding it hard to believe that every single one of these things is a coincidence. I mean, one of my favorite stories in this whole case is the interesting couple that rented that Kalama house. Kalama. Are you familiar? Is that how it says? Kalama? Yeah. Kalama. Kalama house. Kalama house. Okay. Strange. I'm not sure I'm familiar with that story. Well, it was at the end of September. Now, this place sounds like it was virtually uninhabitable, but a couple shows up, pays with an out-of-state check from Nevada, rents this place, never moves in, comes back at the end of October, pays for another month, never moves in, never move in. They were driving a late-model Datsun station wagon, which to me, a 1971 station wagon screamed, we have kids. There were no kids around. Uh, they move out mysteriously Thanksgiving weekend. The check was drawn off a Nevada bank. It had a name on it, but not an address. The man said he was unemployed, but not to worry about where the money was coming from. So the minute they moved out and the landlord heard about the hijacking he immediately contacted the fbi and they did come and they investigated this house which they said was remote and was not a place that probably anybody could live in so i don't know was this like a shack on his property i really don't know the only thing they found was receipt from a seattle hardware store that's still there actually it was kind of a mom and pop hardware store. Was this an itemized receipt? There's no, it was for like $23. There was nothing, there's no indication. There's no indication that they checked out whoever wrote this check, other than it was just a big mystery. The, 
the name again tell me how to say it Cal Kalama is that correct yeah Kalama. Kalama that comes up that Radicek spoke about that town because there was an FAA beacon there I don't really know what that means but there was something they were actually looking for that they could not see and it turns out later that the reason was is that it was not operating for whatever reason strange i don't know stuff like that in this case i just love it i don't know i love that story um i mean these people were up to something um oh and of course the needless to say the renter fit the sketch and the profile of course and <laughs> height age etc cetera, etc cetera, because of course you already knew he would because that's how things go in this. So was that a safe house? Was that a rendezvous point? I don't know. That's interesting. Not too far away from the drop zone either. No. And and very close to all those things we just talked about, like Lewis River Road and the there was also a boat that was stolen. Who knows? Kind of strange. Yeah, the stolen boat, that plays into uh Bill Rollins theory because he has him going down the Lewis River and all the way to Tina Bar. Okay. Well, I, I haven't taken it to Tina Bar because I don't think the money was planted that night. So that doesn't fit into any of my theories. But What do you um, think about Tina Bar? How'd the money get there, Pat? <laughs> well, I think I know how it didn't get there. I do not think that a man of that age, and we haven't talked about that, but I harp on that all the time. We, I mean, I sound like a kindergarten teacher, but we need to put on our 1971 glasses when we're looking at this, this case. I don't think a man who was in his 40s could have been 50. Back then, 50 was not the new 40 by any stretch. You were 50, you were kind of getting old. He pulls off this crazy crime. He actually get he, he does it, right? They give him the money. He jumps out. He's not dead. Why in the world would you bury the money of all places next to a river? I, I don't understand this. I, I, to me, it, it's just completely and totally illogical. I wouldn't have let that money away from me for a second. Now, I know some of the other hijackers hid the money for a short period of time. I could see maybe if he thought there would be roadblocks or something that he might have stashed in a in a bush, but I mean, I would have been back, you know, very, very soon. And I know somebody else's theory is about, you know, possibly he uh, buried the money at Tina Bar and then went to a bus station in Vancouver. Uh, presumably they had a Greyhound bus station. But, you know, typically bus stations, they have lockers. You know, I just love tying this case into Every TV show and movie that I've ever watched, but we were watching The Getaway with Steve McQueen the other night, and you know they they hide the loot in the in a locker at a train station, and that that is like such a common trope in all these old movies and TV shows, and I think just leaving it buried underground is just it just doesn't make any sense. Now, how did it get there? I, I, I kind of like the idea that it really it was dropped in a sand or gravel pit somewhere else and they trucked in some sand. I, I kind of like that. 
I, I think that makes sense to me. I also wonder, based on the timing of it, that somebody didn't put it there on purpose to be found. I know people don't like that, but Mr. Ingram did say the money was kind of sticking out of the sand. After all, the FBI, they were hot on the trail of several people. Um, maybe the person who was a very good suspect decided that they wanted to prove that they were really dead. And I think a pretty good place to do that would be put it right next to somewhere where they could have landed in the water. I mean, I know that's out there, but I don't know. Come up with a better explanation because there really isn't one, is there? There, there isn't one. Do you think there is a, if it's planted, do you think it, it's an homage to Tina being at Tina Bar? No, I don't. I, I don't know. I, I think you can get kind of like the, the name Dan Cooper with the comic books. I don't, I don't buy that. I, I think there's so many Dan Coopers out there that that's just like Bob Johnson or something. I mean, it's just like an average name. So no, I think that's a coincidence, but certainly a an interesting one. And the comic book um, name, that's just a coincidence too? Well, I think it is because there's no indication that Dan Cooper spoke French or had ever been in Belgium or wherever. And why would he remember reading that comic? Like I said, it's just, if it was a really unusual name, I would totally believe it, you know, but not, I mean, Dan Cooper is just such an all-American, boring accountant name or something isn't it i mean if you were to hijack a plane tomorrow what name would you pick i mean i'd probably pick like sue smith or i don't know well i'm picking like dan that. cooper <laughs> okay all right well you're gonna get caught if you do that so we're all gonna figure that one out so no i think i don't think he knew someone named dan cooper i don't think it was a old army buddy i don't think there was his boss who fired him I, I just i think this is because we have nothing else to talk about but sometimes you just have to make these connections because what else is there but no i don't think there's i just think he may I, i'm finding it interesting though and i'm skeptical of the ticket seller that he said when he asked him his name he said cooper dan cooper i mean come on Weird, right? But then I started thinking about how my dad always used to introduce himself on the phone or whatever by his last name first. So I kind of think that that may not be a James Bond type thing. It may be more of men in that age group really refer to themselves by their last names. Especially in a formal setting like that, where it's like Schaefer, Darren Schaefer. Yes, that's the first thing that, you know, because... I mean, really, how do they write your name on a ticket? Do they put the last name first or they put the first? I mean, I don't always know that. You know, when somebody asks me my name, sometimes I do say my last name first, not knowing are they typing in, you know, last name and then first name. So I, I don't I don't really think that's a James Bond thing. It's kind of like a lot of the people saying, well, he was Catholic and he could, he didn't use bad language. That. I really don't get that one. I mean, I'm Catholic. I don't get that one at all. I think he didn't use bad language because he was a middle-aged man who grew up in a time period 
where that's how men talk to young ladies. They didn't use bad language. That just wasn't being polite and respectable. And that's just not how men acted. Now, criminal types might have acted that way. You know, if you were a two-bit, you know, crook or a gangster or some creepy guy. But I think Cooper, I don't think that was Cooper. Um, so I don't think that means anything. I think any other man on the plane would have spoken to the ladies in exactly the same way. Let's get into Cooper's age, because that's something I've always thought was so interesting. You know, if I told you that somebody hijacked this plane and jumped out, guess their age, you would probably say 24, maybe 26. Of course. But 40 to 50 years old is a really weird age to do something like this. What do you think that says about who Cooper is? Well, it's it's beyond weird. And again, if you were around in 1971, you would appreciate the how strange that was. And we know from all the other from the copycats. I mean, these were these were young guys. I mean, crime in general, even today, is mostly committed by younger men. I mean, we all know that men's brains are not formed until somewhere in their 20s. Some of us might think that doesn't happen until quite a bit older, but that's just my opinion. His age just doesn't make sense. And the fact that he did this between 40 and 50, to me, is someone who really had nothing left to lose. I mean, this guy had to be desperate. This was not a, you know, thrill type uh, endeavor. I'm going to show them. I'm going to, I mean, that's completely off the table for me. This guy needed money. I mean, there's an old saying by, uh, who was the bank robber back in the day when they asked him, why do you rob banks? He said, because that's where the money is. I mean, why else would you hijack a plane and jump out? Because you just wanted to show everybody you still had it. Well, nobody's going to know. Oh, because then you'd have to tell them, right? So how does that make sense? Um, <clears throat> I also don't think this was part of some big like Ocean's Eleven type conspiracy or anything that, you know, a whole bunch of people were involved and I, that doesn't add up for me either. I think this guy, he, he was just, I think he did have a grudge. I think his grudge was that his life didn't turn out the way he, he thought it was going to turn out. And he was desperate for money and he had this idea and he pulled it off. Do you think he had an accomplice? I think we actually did a, <clears throat> I did a Facebook live about this a couple of weeks ago. I think if the bomb was real, which I'm kind of, I was completely, it wasn't real, but I'm sort of moving the needle a little bit on that, but. Me too, me too. Okay, if the bomb was real, I don't think he had an accomplice. Because do you really want to be an accomplice with a guy who's going to blow up an airplane along with himself, and you're kind of left holding the bag, and the bag doesn't have any money in it. So uh, that I don't see, I think that'd be a lot harder to convince somebody to go along with that. If the bomb was not real, I think Certainly Cooper had to have some sort of exit strategy on this. I don't think that you would have planned out this whole crime and then not thought about, well, what am I going to do once I land on the ground? I'll just kind of wing it. I, I find that hard to believe. Again, as we get older, we become so much more risk averse. 
I mean, that's just human nature. And I don't think he would have planned it through to the extent that he was taking back the notes, that, you know, that kind of behavior that he wouldn't have thought about, well, what am I going to do when I land? Where am I going to put the parachute? How am I going to get to civilization? What if they're hot on my tail? I mean, so I think that would lend itself to an accomplice, especially since we have absolutely no idea where he was before he got to the airport. I mean, how did he get to the airport? There, there's no, there's no indication. And this guy came out of nowhere. I mean, don't you think it's odd? Because I was reading back through the, the witness reports of the passengers. And there were only, I think, five that actually claimed, you know, that they had actually noticed him for whatever reason. But none of them said anything about seeing him at the airport. I mean, there were only like nine or 10 people who got on that plane in Portland. I mean, I think we're all picturing like we are now, where there's like 5 million people sitting at the gate at every airport, and you couldn't have picked out one person out of the whole place. This was a very, very small group of people. And I can't believe that nobody said, well, you know, there was this guy in hindsight, this guy kind of standing over there by himself. Nobody remembers him except the gate agent. So I think that's strange. Was he there the whole time? After all, he bought the ticket kind of in the two o'clock uh, hour, but they didn't get on the, you know, they didn't leave until almost three, three o'clock. So did he buy his ticket and then go disappear for a while and then come back? I mean, I don't know. He seemed to have aged 15 years between buying the ticket and getting on the plane, according to the two descriptions, which seems kind of strange. But The um, gay agent description, I don't put any weight in that. Because if you're behind the counter at some place uh, selling tickets or fried chicken or whatever, it's just one customer after the other. And really, I mean, you're not going to have a memory of a customer 25 minutes ago unless something really stood out. And so to well, be that would be the, that it, would be the that would be the ticket agent. Yeah. Now the gate agent gate, ticket had agent, a memory. That's right. The the gate agent, and I agree on the ticket agent. He, how many people have, no, how long does it take to write down someone's name? But the gate agent specifically said he noticed people all dressed in black, which I I really don't know what that means. Um, But he did notice because all the other people were kind of converging, sort of commiserating that they were going to have to walk out in the rain since they had to go out on the tarmac to get on the plane. And Cooper was not part of that little uh, group of people that, and so he kind of noticed that everybody, as people do, you know, when you're in those situations and you start chit-chatting and how come the plane's late and it's raining and I just want to go home, that he was all by himself. Um, And he did note that he did have a briefcase. Didn't say anything about the mystery bag, though. Just the briefcase. What do you think was in the mystery bag? Well, I think that all the things that people say could have been in the mystery bag, he probably could have had in his pockets. And if you think about a suit, I mean, you have your pockets in your suit jacket, you have your pockets in your pants, then he had that raincoat. A lot of suits have pockets on the inside. So, I mean, goggles or gloves, those kind of things, I don't know why he wouldn't have just put them... I mean, it it had to be something bigger. I don't think it was 
boots. I think that would have been real obvious in a bag. Uh, of course, it's conflicting information on what the bag really looked like. Um, I don't know. It's it's really strange. I mean, Tina said it was like a, a bag that a shirt would come in, which to me, that's more of like a flat kind of a sleeve bag, whereas the passenger said it was more of like a canvas bag. I don't know. What was in the bag? What do you think was in the bag? I, I don't know. I've been thinking along the same lines. I talked to a skydiver once about it. What what would you put in that bag if you're going to try and pull this off? And because my thinking was like gloves and goggles. And he was like, bro, you could put gloves and goggles in your pocket. That's right. And he we know he had a knife. I've actually been looking into that this week because I found out in other countries, you're actually required to carry a knife when you skydive in case you get tangled up to cut the lines. But I did check with someone in the U.S. and that is, that is not true. But they're not, at least it's not the law here, but there are like it's a certain type of knife. I don't remember the name of it. That is actually specifically for cutting those shroud lines um, should an emergency arise where you needed to cut them for some reason. So did he have the knife because he was a skydiver and he was kind of used to carrying a knife just in case that he needed it for that purpose? For some reason, I don't think he brought the knife as a weapon. I think the knife was utilitarian. I agree. That's I definitely agree with that. Um, did he have a gun? I don't know. If he had a gun, it certainly wasn't in that bag. Because if I'm carrying a gun as a weapon, it's it's in my pocket where I can get to it immediately. I'm certainly not reaching under my seat and digging around in my mystery bag. So I don't think that's what it was. Now, a radio, my understanding is there were very small radios that were typically used in Vietnam by... Uh, paratroopers because if they jumped in the woods and they needed to connect with their fellow soldiers uh, but supposedly those were also very small and could just fit in your pocket so well, even that I I struggle with what would the range be on a radio from the late 60s you know 1970 you know, I've, I've heard six I've heard 60 miles there were some pretty inexpensive radios you could buy that would go that far. But then again, Cooper <clears throat> wasn't real specific about where he was going to jump or didn't seem to know where he was going to jump. So 60 miles is, I don't know. That's why he needed a break in that store and get to a phone. <laughs> I right? definitely think he needed to get to a phone. <laughs> yeah. But if he needed to get to a phone, that means there had to be somebody on the other end. I don't think he was calling a cab. So who was on the other end of the phone? Maybe the other lady who rented the the lady who rented the house with him in the dots. And I think, yeah, who does he call? The thing that I really struggle with an, an accomplice or a team is that this has been kept quiet. You know, and I talked to Larry Carr. He's like, you know, if you rob a bank and you get away, it's really, really tough to to figure out who that was. But he's like, usually that gets solved because they run their mouth. Of course. Of course, unless it was, if it was a woman and it was his wife, his, you know, lover, whatever. I mean, 
Clara. You know, there's, there's, oh, you took the words right out of my mouth, right? There's Clara. So, of course, Clara wasn't involved in the hijacking. She came in as an accomplice after the fact. A little bit different, but, and she, she didn't, well, she kept her mouth shut somewhat. At least she didn't go to the police until after he was dead or the FBI, right? So, I think you could convince your spouse to be quiet. I do. What do you think of the Max Gunther story? You know, I I, I really like that story. I, I do think that Max Gunther was completely legitimate. I actually spoke with someone who interviewed him at length. And I mean, he was he was the real deal. He did not make up the story. He did it in good faith. Did Clara and her beau make this up? That's a whole other story. But what was what was their end game on this? I mean, they they asked for a little bit of money up front, but then they never really followed up with that. And then she waits 10 years. I mean, this is the longest con in history. And then she never does ask for any money. So were these just two? You know, it's not too hard to find one crazy person, but then when you start putting two crazy people together, to me, it becomes a little less believable. So possibly this was a couple that thought this was a way to score um, that really had absolutely nothing to do with the case. But then she continues to participate knowing that she's going to get nothing. She does. And then comes back and writes a letter to Himmelsbach and, you know, 10 years later. And Cooper is allegedly dead. According to her, he's dead. And she continues on with it. But there's so many things that absolutely do not add up that are completely and totally wrong. Were they purposely misleading Gunther so that, I don't know. I mean, if you wanted someone to believe that your story was true, it seems like you would use true facts. You wouldn't make up crazy stuff. Now, the fact that, you know, he was in that little shack when she found him injured does kind of make me wonder again about the couple living or not living in that shack who never really moved in. I don't know if it's true or not. There's a lot of weird things in there, though, that I think maybe somebody had some inside information. I do like the idea that he was running away from his family. There was a book that they actually they mentioned in Gunther uh, and they made a movie out of it, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, that whole idea of the, you know, midlife crisis, the guy who's, you know, running away from the wife and bratty kids and too much responsibility, which really kind of does fit the Cooper profile, except I really think um, whoever D.B. Cooper was, I do think he was mentally ill. I do. The the Max Gunther story it's just another thing where it's like uh, he pre- he's presenting this as nonfiction. He's a, a serious, successful author. And I think especially in that time, what's the book come out? 85 or something. Uh-huh. It is. It, it would be a lot riskier professionally to. To lie and to present something. To present a work like that. And, you know, he says, opens the book, basically, like, this is the story I've been told. I can't really prove it, but I do believe uh-huh. that it's true. And oh, no, just, I think he believe them. It just drives me crazy that we don't, we don't even get to know who Clara is. No, 
my understanding is that Gunther had a lot more notes, but he was so offended by the way he was treated and the way the book was reviewed that he just, you know, that was it for him that he gave. There was also a um, very high profile hope, publishing hoax before that about a Howard Hughes biography that was the guy ended up going to prison. It was, it was a really big deal. And I think it might've even been the same publishing company. So I would think that certainly they were not involved. I think they, I think Gunther did this in good faith. He believed the story. I have no idea why these two characters would feel the need to tell their story. I mean, after all, if he got away with it and he had the money, why do you need somebody to know about it? I mean, don't you think you'd just be hiding somewhere and counting your lucky stars that you got away with it? I mean, why would you want to, somebody to write a book about you? And it's kind of Well, because at a certain point, you would want people to know, like, hey, I did this. You're all talking about this. I did it. I pulled it off. And I think if you could get the story out through a journalist who was going to keep you confidential that would be fantastic that would be the best way to do it for sure but is it is it true i don't know i just wish it's just another unsolved thing in this case like i'm never going to get to know who clara was which you know i'm not sure if that's the real story of db cooper it doesn't seem to add up with some of the stuff that i know but i want to know who clara was it's this other piece in the vortex that we're never going to find out. And Clara could still be alive. Right. I mean, that's, that's the crazy thing, right? I mean, Clara could be like listening to your, she could be on the DB Cooper Facebook page. I mean, for all we know. Clara, um, come on the show. I know. I mean, she really could be out there. I mean, was this a woman who just kind of you know, if there had to been the guy first, I would think this was some lonely woman who kind of fantasized this whole relationship with this mystery hijacker that was never caught. But there was a man in the beginning who was part of this. So that kind of blows that theory. I don't know. I don't think I'm going to figure that one out. I really don't. But it's a great story. Yeah. And, you know, having seen what happened with Joe Weber when her husband confesses, if this guy really thought that he was Cooper or told her that he was Cooper when he wasn't, I mean, we've seen countless family members who are trying to pursue something their relative told them. And well, there could be that, except she indicated that he still had some of the money. So that would be pretty hard to explain. You know, they had the whole thing, how they, you know, spent the money at the casino or whatever. I, there was so... If he said he was Cooper and he lost the money, but it was him, that would be a lot less believable. But I mean, where are you coming up with all this mystery money? So that to me, that doesn't lend credibility to this was just some guy who trying to hook up with a girl and this was a great story. I don't think so because the money is curious, which Speaking of money, 
One of the things that drives me crazy in this case, there are many. I wake up during the night thinking about this. Why would Cooper think that there was $200,000 available the night before Thanksgiving when a lot of banks closed at three o'clock back then? It's very, very strange to me. That's always bothered me in this case. I mean, if you went up to the bank right now and even today tried to get $200,000, they'd laugh you out. They'd probably call the FBI. Um, even if you had that much money in your checking account, right? Um, banks don't keep that much money um, for many reasons. Why would he assume be, that they would so easily be able to procure that money? And even odder, why was it so easy to procure that money? I think um, about that too. Like, Seafirst had $250,000 set aside for such an occasion. And yes. he asks for an amount within that. And then, then that yes. brings up two questions. Did he know that that money was there? And then if he yes. does, then he knows that they have the serial numbers of that money logged. Yes, I know. But see, then if that's the case, if this is an inside job and his mystery girlfriend or somebody worked at the bank, then you're kind of going all Ocean's Eleven, I think, on this, which... I, know, I can never decide if I'm giving Cooper not enough credit or too much credit. You know, that, that adds a whole different layer to this thing. Then this is really a bank robbery, except you're jumping out of a plane. I mean, that, that kind of combines two different types of crimes. So, but the original story, apparently, that there were ransom packs around the country that either the FBI or the federal government or some agency for whatever reason had around the country in case of some type of extortion event or kidnapping or, or whatever. That I don't think is true. I mean, that has been what, we, what we've always read, but it doesn't sound like that's true. It sounds like this was case specific to that bank that they were actually worried that a... Um, one of their employees could be kidnapped during a robbery, which actually happened. Uh, I don't know that it was that particular bank, but had happened where someone came in to rob the bank and then they did take someone hostage for ransom. So allegedly that's why that money was there. But think about that's like, you know, a couple, almost a couple million dollars today. Banks don't make money by leaving it in their vault, you know, that's, that's just not done. So it's, it's certainly curious. I'll say that. And if he did know the serial numbers were marked, they're talking about someone who also knew about how to launder money, which again, we were talking multiple layers of criminal behavior. That sounds to me like it's, you know, organized crime or something. It does not sound like a dorky, 50-year-old guy wearing mismatched clothes, flirting with 21-year-old stewardesses jumping out of an airplane. I mean, that just doesn't sound like it to me. So I think maybe this was just one of those things that he didn't think about, which is kind of dumb, right? Yeah. I don't it, know. The more I think about Cooper, the less brilliant he becomes. Well, I think about that all the time, too. Like, how much of this was he got lucky or how much of it was... This was so well planned out. I'm starting to think a lot of it 
was luck because he didn't think about they were going to have to stop for fuel. I mean, he thought about that, but he told them up front that if they did need to stop for fuel, it had to be in Mexico. Of course, he knew that he wasn't even going to be on the plane anymore, obviously, but he didn't think about what city. Why didn't he have this planned out? I mean, if he really knew that much about airplanes and how flying at that configuration, they were going to burn more fuel. Why didn't he think about that? I think it's very odd that he mentioned Yuma as one of the cities. I maintain who knows where Yuma is. I know I don't. I mean, I know it's in Arizona, but that's a very obscure city. And keeping in mind, again, in 1971, people did travel like they did now. I didn't take my first plane flight till I was 16. I mean, now everybody's got a baby on a flight, right? Um, so I think that's, I think that means that he had to be from somewhere in the Western part of the country that based on the way he was dressed and the fact that he did mention Yuma, which I think is just to me is an obscure city to talk about. Well, he also comments that Minnesota is nice country. Nice country. I have a theory on that, but I will not share. Um, as we talked about earlier, I do have a couple of suspects that I am looking at, and uh, there's the definite connection to Minnesota. So I think perhaps maybe he had relatives there or he knew about Minnesota. But you're because keeping I've your suspect under wraps for right now. I, I am. I'm actually working with someone else on this, and um, we have some good suspects. I think everybody needs, that's why I think the case is going to be solved. Not that I necessarily am going to solve it, because I certainly uh, am not that presumptuous, but not everybody's sending out press releases or, um, you know, billboard, putting up billboards or whatever. There's a lot of things going on behind the scenes that I think people don't know about. Um, some pretty interesting work that is still being done and new things that are being uncovered every day. That's why I do think it will be solved. Probably not to everyone's satisfaction, but then some people don't believe Oswald killed Kennedy and some people don't think men walked on the moon. And so, I mean, yes, there's probably gonna be people that will be the naysayers, but I think for the vast majority of people will go, yeah, that's him. I, I think it will be reasonably put to bed at some point. What will it take to solve this? Because a confession certainly not doing it at this point in time. No, I, I don't like confessions. I, if you got away with this, why would you confess? Especially since there was an open indictment. I mean, right? You could go to jail. This is silly. And all the people that confessed you know, where's the money? Well, it's in a safe deposit box, but where's the safe deposit box? I mean, there's all these kind of shady stories. And I, I don't really believe any of the people that confess because for whatever reason, people wanted to insinuate themselves in the case. I mean, we know people call up and, and uh, confess to being, you know, serial killers. So, I mean, there's all kinds of people out there that are crazy. I mean, to solve the case, obviously, DNA in fact, I was just reading an article about all the high-profile cases that have been solved in the last five years because of DNA. 
And I mean, we know a lot of them and some of them I had never even heard of. So it will be DNA. That's going to be tough, but I don't think that's impossible. So we'll see. Where are we going to get Cooper's things. DNA from? Taking a look I at the know. tie. I have, I have a couple of, I have a couple of ideas, but I'll, that'll, we'll have to save that for uh, when my book comes out, then I'll have to come back on. Oh, hell yeah. How did, right. how did Cooper know the flight configuration to jump out of that plane? You mean the, about the door? Oh, you mean like the flaps and all that? Yeah. Or, you know, what speed to go at? I thought, I didn't know if you meant the, if the stairs could come down. I think Cooper had some information in his earlier life that he uh, had reason trying to see how to say this without giving too much away. But there was a lot going on during World War II, if you really look back into it, that even teenagers in high school were really being prepped to go to war. I mean, we were in the middle of a war, right? We don't, we don't, weren't around. We don't know what it was like. And that they were really being trained in similar to a civil air patrol type situation that they learned from active Air Force personnel a whole lot more than you would ever believe about airplanes. So I think Cooper knew a lot of stuff from back then. And I think, you know, everybody says, well, he could have gone to the library. And well, probably. I also think Cooper was, wait for it, the Elsinore ghost. Don't you? I'm not sure. I mean, it's just another one of those stories where it's like, here's this incredible coincidence. But th that's it. It's just that one small story. Well, but it's really not a small story. I mean, how many people are showing up? asking those kind of questions. You know, it's kind of like showing up at a bank and asking them like, well, is your fault on a timer? And what time do you get here in the morning? And yeah, I mean, it, you know, they're, they're not normal questions. I mean, you, you would ra certainly raise suspicion if you were to do that. Now, our super sleuth of all time, Nikki B, um, came up with a I don't, do you know about ripcord? Have you heard about this? Um, Maybe. I know he's done a lot a, with it. El there was Elsinore. a TV. This is, this is pretty new information. There was a TV show that was on in the early 60s, super low budget and cheesy, called Ripcord. It was about two guys who skydive, and they solve crimes. And it was on for a couple of years. They said it was so popular that like the membership in the American Parachute Association doubled literally because of this show. Well, there's an episode where, uh, it's a long story, but a guy has to save these two kids and he shows up in a black suit, skinny black tie and sunglasses and straps on a chute and gets up in the plane and jumps out, falls into a ravine and gets killed. I mean, I was almost screaming when I was watching it. Of course, the best part of it is who was the stunt 
skydiver and uh, consultant to the show. Let me guess, Lyle Cameron. You got it. Weird. That's pretty weird. That's pretty weird. You know you're going to go watch. It's on YouTube. It's called Ripcord. I think it was the last episode. And it's kind of chopped up. It looks like somebody recorded it from TV and kind of meshed a couple of episodes together. It's really pretty wild. There's a lot of stuff. I know you've talked with other people about the movies, Airport and North by Northwest and all that. There's a lot of other shows movies they were almost like premonitions of cooper but this one is this the lyle cameron i think cooper specifically sought him out it's too much of a coincidence that he just wandered into elsinore and just happens to find a guy who's the you know editor of that skydiving magazine who just happens to be the consultant on that show, blah, blah, blah. You know, the one person who would know, it wasn't like you or me who was working there after school for minimum wage, who didn't know what was going on. This was like the guy, right? So did he just happen to stumble upon the guy? I don't think so. I and think it seems like Lyle Cameron was up for some shenanigans as well. Oh, he totally was. He totally was. He kind of scares me when I read about some of that stuff. But the story made sense. The Raleigh coupons in his pocket, that was a little weird. I don't know, why would you make that up? I mean, he was a trusted FBI informant, apparently. What, what would he have to gain by making up the story? Nothing. Yeah, lying to the FBI, is a, that's a federal offense, right? That's true. So what are you up to? Why? What, what's, what's your motive? There is none. There's no motive. Well, to play devil's advocate, maybe he thought that it would get some publicity for his drop zone. Or you mean his sky, yeah, his skydiving for Elsinore? Eh, I don't know. How widely reported was this, really? Uh, you know, I, I didn't mean, learn I, about I it until I had spent a year in the vortex or so. Yeah. So, I mean, was this front page news that a skydiver said that some guy was asking crazy questions eh, i don't know i i don't think so and after all the fbi i mean they had to look through what like twelve thousand cards of skydiving I mean, this was a major rabbit hole if he was lying i would i would have locked the guy up i mean he wasted a lot of time and manpower and everything else and i i don't think he did i don't see any any purpose unless somehow he was involved and he was trying to divert attention there's absolutely no evidence or indication of that whatsoever so i don't know that's what i think but that community was definitely very interested in in cooper from from the jump <laughs> but like uh i think about ted mayfield like what what's ted mayfield doing you know, calling into the FBI that night to talk about he, it. He was a real character. I mean, how many people died, right? A couple. Because of his uh, lack of expertise or whatever. Yeah. It, it, am I thinking I of the know. right There's... person? Didn't Ted Mayfield uh, get like hit by a propeller? Wasn't that the end of his, his life? Or am I mixing people up? I don't know. 
not sure. I, I don't know a lot about him other than I thought that uh, there were some fatal skydiving accidents, I thought, under his watch, but I could be confusing him. Or I'm pretty sure there um, were some, some fatal skydives under his watch, but I want to say that his life ended from a propeller accident. I know a couple of these guys, I think, ended up dying in plane crashes. Yes. He struck his arm okay. with the airplane prop and died at the scene of the injury. Wow. I, I want to say you just cannot make this stuff up because there's too many things that literally you just couldn't make them up if you tried, right? And that's oh, kind yeah. of why I'm thinking that they almost have to be true. One of the reasons I started the show, because I was like, you know, even if McCoy, for example, he's not Cooper, that's one of the most interesting stories I've ever heard. And I'm surprised they didn't make a movie about it. Well, they couldn't make a movie about the real McCoy because Karen successfully sued them and they were That's forbidden right. from selling the movie because rights. She may or may not have been involved. I don't know. What do you so, think of McCoy as Cooper? I mean, it's definitely not him. I mean, I can see why people making a very cursory look at the case would say, well, makes sense. But he was way too young. I mean, we know he didn't look anything like him. His speech impediment and you know if he failed miserably the first time and lost the money would you really try it again i mean i think i'd go do something else seemed like i you know that it, it's not him i think he's just a tragic story really and really most of the copycats were tragic stories these were a lot of guys with ptsd and um I think, I guess, you know, he had a young family. He just didn't see any other way out. It's just really sad how he ended up. Uh, but no, I don't think he's even to be considered. What do you think of my theory that McCoy knew Cooper? Oh. If you could show me a picture of Wolfgang Gossett standing with McCoy or Ted Braden standing with McCoy, then I'm done. That's Cooper, 100%. Well, that's interesting. I mean, we're... we're I mean, Cooper was a lot older. Mm -hmm. So where would they, they certainly didn't, Cooper did not serve in Vietnam. I mean, there's no. Well, Ted Braden served in Vietnam. Vietnam. No, but I mean, you were saying, well, okay, but I don't think Ted Braden is Cooper either. So. Well, I don't really um, think, I think, I think Ted Braden could be Cooper. Uh, but if you showed me a picture of Ted Braden standing next to Richard McCoy, now I'm a hundred percent sold on Ted. I, I agree. I mean, now now we're talking about this. These are no longer coincidences. I mean, that's pretty clear, right? I mean, we're not. Uh, I think it's kind of like the guy now who's completely convinced that his dad was Cooper and the Zodiac, and I, I just think you start bringing all these things in together. You know, they might have known each other. I just don't know from where. I mean, he was a college student with a young family. Tell me where they would have crossed paths. Well, Gossett could have crossed paths with McCoy, maybe through Mormonism in Utah. Yeah. I mean, that's a bit of a stretch, but possible. But again, I don't think Gossett is Cooper either. So, Well, I, those I are like really them. the only two I, I could think of that I could connect to McCoy. Yeah. Well, it'd be something interesting to look at 
Because what was he doing in Las Vegas? I mean, what was he doing in Las Vegas? I mean, wasn't that he supposedly was there? I mean, that was kind of seemed out of character, didn't it? It does seem out of character. I mean, a guy who's so desperate for money, who's very religious. And where's the last place you'd be would be Sin City. Yeah, and he took a very expensive trip to North Carolina. Where did he get the money to do that? Well, was he a gambler? I mean, was that part of his problem? Because a lot of people think maybe Cooper needed money because he owed, you know, the wrong people money because he was a gambler. I mean, is there any indication that he had a gambling problem? I've never heard anything about a gambling problem with McCoy, but, you know, based off sort of his daredevil lifestyle and thrill seeking, yes. you know, maybe coming back from Vietnam and not and missing some of the action. The I adrenaline rush. Sure. I, I mean, I can that. see that too. I mean, I can see yeah, the Las Vegas thing, I think, is that's the kind of place where you rub elbows with some interesting people. So I could see that. And I'm, you know, a man with a young family. I, what is he doing there? I don't know. What do you think of the fact that the FBI, within 18 months of this, released two different sketches that look very different? Well, that certainly didn't help case. I think it's really interesting that we call them, which I don't think they look anything like being Crosby or Cary Grant myself, but you know, is that when we do talk about suspects on the, again, I don't really follow much the drop zone, but I do look at the Facebook page a lot, is that we always say, well, you know, he kind of looked like, and you know, if I said you looked like Brad Pitt, well, we'd, we'd have a mental image of kind of what you look like. But none of the witnesses said, well, Cooper kind of looked like a popular actor at the time. I find that kind of strange. It's kind of like in the Gunther book. I mean, she says he looks like Ben Gazzara, who was a popular TV actor of that era, um, who was actually in an interesting 1960s show about he was dying terminally ill and he was going to have a bunch of adventures before he died. So that was, so that's kind of strange. But no, the sketches um, really confuse the issue in that by the time the second one came out, I think everyone sort of had moved on to something else. Um, and I really don't think the witnesses after that much time, I know even Tina said, that she was starting to picture Cooper in her mind as looking like the sketch because she had seen it so much. So that she doesn't even know if she saw a real picture of him, she'd even know. So, and I don't understand, well, we all know witness descriptions are notoriously unreliable. And like we said earlier, I mean, the ticket agent said he was about 35, the gate agent said he's 50. And so unless you've aged 15 years walking, you know, few yards over I don't really put a whole lot of faith in the sketches really I, I don't I don't really think Cooper really looked like that in my mind I mean the things that were so that were mentioned so frequently were that he had a it was the lip the really sort of protruding lower lip you know the jet black hair which I think was dyed jet black hair um you know, he didn't have any really distinguishing features, any kind of 
scars or moles or you know anything like that he was he was quite nondescript which definitely and possibly had brown eyes i'm sorry yes brown eyes but now i'm kind of wondering with the eyes because of course i'm also convinced that cooper was on drugs i think he was taking benzedrine i think that's why he offered it to the to tina because i think that that was his own personal prescription. I was kind of wondering if his eyes would be really dilated. I don't know. That just kind of came to me today. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, Jude brought up a really good point that he's just like the most boring person ever because nobody could remember anything about him. He's just average beyond being average. He's extraordinary in how ordinary he is. Except for he did have weird hair, so he definitely had done something to his hair. I'm thinking, well, men used to put shoe polish on their hair to dye it. Um, so there was something odd, greasy, could have been brill cream, something odd about his hair. I think it's really strange he let Flo see him without the glasses on. I mean, what was up with that? Um, he just didn't seem that concerned about them knowing what he looked like. I mean, Cooper came out of nowhere and then disappeared back into the ether, really. Oh, yeah. I say it all the time. He only exists for five hours. He does. And I think prior, because think about what he was wearing. I mean, this was like, this was a goofy outfit, really. I mean, the more you look into, and I was reading back with the one gentleman who owned the paint company who said he looked, he knew a lot about colors, um, that that was a weird color suit, kind of a calling it russet, which is kind of, you know, that reddish brown, you know, with that skinny black tie. And then he's wearing those short boots, which those boots were kind, they were like trendy at the time. I mean, those were kind of like, mod shoes you know so he's wearing these kind of mod type shoes with this even the fbi said even the shirt was out of style because it had really small collars on the shirt the the whole clip-on tie thing to me is weird and then he takes this gross clip-on tie and it's like lipstick on a pig he puts on this mother of pearl tie clip, which why even bother? I'm hijacking a plane. I've got a raincoat on. Nobody's even seeing this, right? Nobody mentioned the tie clip. The only reason that I know about it is because he left the tie on the plane. So he's got this really goofy outfit on that was from some other era. He's talking like a guy who's from another era. He's talking like, I'm surprised he didn't say, you know, you dirty rat, you know, like Jimmy Cagney or somebody. I mean, he's he's using a lot of expressions that you would have heard in an old movie from the 40s. I think this guy was kind of off the 1971 version of the grid for a while before. And I think that's why he was acting the way he was. And I think that's one reason why they didn't find him. And I think he went back to his 
1971 version of Off the Grid afterwards. I think they just were really never going to find him because they never could believe where he would be. He was just, everything, everything was off about the guy. Everything was just, why wasn't he wearing a hat? That bugs me. What a perfect disguise. I don't know about your bank, but my bank has a sign in the window that says, no sunglasses and hats allowed. Well, I mean, there's a reason for that, right? It's a great disguise. Why didn't he have a hat on? I think half the men on the plane had hats on. Sunglasses and a hat, they never would have picked him out if he didn't have a hat on. Yeah, there was a guy so, with a big cowboy hat on. There were two guys actually with cowboy hats. There's one at the beginning, kind of, there's a younger guy, and then there's an older guy later on in that little video from the, the local news. Um, and then, you know, the typical fedora type hats that men wore. So he could have easily fit in perfectly wearing one of those, but he didn't, which to me is strange. Um, so everything about his demeanor, his language, his clothing, everything about that was like he had missed out on the last five years or something. So I think he was somewhere else. It is so interesting that he really made little to no effort to obscure his identity. No, except the fingerprints. Why did he not leave more fingerprints? Did he have super glue on his fingerprints like they used to do on the old Mission Impossible show? I don't know. I Like I told you earlier, I think he took the tie and he wiped down the fingerprints. I think that makes think a lot of sense. I think that's how the tie, I think that's why he took off the tie. Because think about, this was the last leg of a really busy day on that plane. Why were there not more fingerprints? I mean, well, now that's a whole other story that drives me crazy. Why weren't there more people on that plane? Anybody think about that? Oh, I think about it all the time. And that's not even half full. And well, you know why. <laughs> do you want me to tell you yeah let's um, hear no, it actually, actually there's a crazy crazy uh, another guy who uh confessed jack kofelt do you remember him yep uh he confessed he was an ex-con he had enlisted his uh cellmate and his son to he said he dropped the money on the way. To, anyway, they got a lot of press. They even had a Hollywood producer looking at making a movie. They were written up in several articles that I read about him. He was not Cooper because he was supposedly in a hospital at the time. Nevertheless, he said something really, really interesting. He said the reason why there were so few people on that plane is because he called in a bunch of fake reservations. Now, immediately, you and I are going to go, well, how the heck do you do that? You try calling in a fake reservation this afternoon, Gina and I did, and they're going to hang up on you, right? You need a credit card. It was determined by several people in the Facebook group that in 1971, you picked up the phone, you said, this is Mrs. Smith. I'm traveling with my husband and my three darling children. We'd like to reserve five seats from Portland to Seattle, and that's all they needed. No credit card, nothing. It was the honor system. When you got to the airport, you paid for the flight. Now, 
is this what happened? Probably not, but I think it's kind of interesting because it seems, I mean, I have the manifest from a few of those legs. They were all pretty empty, which is completely counterintuitive to the day before Thanksgiving. It would be. It should be one of the busiest travel days. And it, and it was. I mean, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, back then people didn't travel that much, you know, blah, blah. But all the articles of that weekend were how busy the airports were. Plus, there was a big snowstorm, apparently, somewhere in the Spokane area. So anyway, a lot of people were not driving. They were kind of hopping on planes at the last minute. Just because it almost back then was like hopping on a bus, right? Which, of course, brings in the Amtrak train hoax, which is another interesting coincidence the day before, the bomb hoax. I don't know. A lot going on in that Pacific Northwest. That's why I live somewhere else. <laughs> Lots of weird stuff up there. Between Bigfoot and D.B. Cooper, I'm, I'm staying away. Do you think Cooper had a criminal past? I don't think he was a hardened criminal ex-con, no. Um, if he had anything, it was probably some super low-level type something, you know, uh, wrote a bad check type of thing. No, he, there was nothing about him that, well, first of all, I don't really know a lot of people who've been in prison, but just from what I've observed, um, you become pretty hardened pretty quickly in jail. So there was nothing about Cooper that indicated he was so polite uh, the stewardesses were, I don't think they were afraid of him. I mean, Flo didn't mind jumping, coming back on the plane to go she, after she forgot her purse. So there was, and again, that's something super odd about him. Because if you look at the copycats, I mean, they were shoving guns into people's backs and putting a noose around somebody's neck and all sorts of, you know, vulgar language. I mean, they were out of control, right? You're hijacking a plane. This is not Sunday school. But Cooper was acting like, well, I'm not really sure if I'm a hijacker or not. I mean, he never really used the fact that he had an alleged bomb in his lap. Really, hijacking a plane with a, with a bomb is a really dumb idea, because what's your leverage? I mean, if they say no, well, what do you do? Blow yourself up? I mean, you know, it's really kind of a it's kind of a dumb idea so he was just acting like he was just kind of there and I think he was kind of surprised himself that it went off as well as he planned certainly when he got the money he seemed pretty excited so he to me he was very childlike in some ways um the way he acted the way he interacted I think the whole Tina lighting his cigarettes for him is completely wild. It, to me, that's a very uh, sexy type move. If you've ever been a female in a bar, which I doubt you have been, Darren, but um, having a guy lean over and light your cigarette is is typically a, you know, some kind of a come on. So I think it was it seemed to me like he's kind of enjoying himself in a way. What do you think of of Cooper's ability to be calm and cool in that moment? Well, I I do think he was, I think there was a reason why he 
offered the crew, and I do believe that story, offered the crew Benzedrine, is I think because he was taking them himself, um, which typically back then was for depression. Um, one of the elements on the tie was something that, uh, I don't remember the name of the compound, but it was pretty much exclusively used in pill bottles, which I don't know. I don't typically score drugs from the neighborhood pusher, but I'm just guessing that they're not putting them in those nice little containers you get from the pharmacy. So to me, that screams it was his own prescription rather than he bought some Benzedrine just in case he needed it from, you know, some dude on the, some hippie or something. I don't think that was the case. So um, the, the spilling the drink is strange. I don't know anybody who drinks bourbon in Seven Up. So right off the bat, I find that to be very odd. I think he was someone who really didn't drink. I think he picked one from column A and one from column B. That doesn't sound like a drinker to me. So I don't think he had been drinking. I, I do. I think he, he had mental health issues and I think he was medicated. And he was, because he was way, way, way too calm. Even when things did not go his way, like the knapsack, et cetera, he didn't, uh, he didn't push back. You know, where's my knapsack? I've got a bomb, guys. Never, well, I'll just, I'll work, I'll work around it. This right, is and not... you know there's other bags on that plane. Just grab one of them and dump its contents onto uh, the floor. Well, you know, I wondered about, you know, the stewardesses, they were going to go to Miami, right? Was that the deal? I mean, didn't they have some sort of like overnight, you know, they used to carry those little bags. Did they have some sort of carry-on bags? I mean, nobody really has ever mentioned that. I mean, Tina is has a big black purse in the, um, you know, the press conference after, but nobody has really mentioned, did they have any luggage or yes yeah, somebody had something on that plane of course the passengers you know had already left but he you know he did have the money while they were still there so i don't know we haven't determined did they have overhead compartments in those 727s i don't know the answer to that um but certainly in the airport somebody had some sort of a of a backpack type and i don't buy the whole knapsack was a Canadian word that drives me crazy <laughs> because I was a Girl Scout and we sang that song all the time Valderie Valdera my knapsack on my back I mean I didn't grow up in Canada okay I grew up in New Jersey so you know I don't I, I think that's forget about that one do you think the tie particles could lead us to who Cooper was no, because I think the tide particles are, they're too confusing. They're too conflicting. Everybody has a different theory on them. I do think uh, possibly they could have come from jet exhaust. I will not speak to that because I have absolutely no expertise at all in anything. But I know there's a lot of people have looked at that that there does seem to be a big coordination or uh, between what is in jet fuel, jet engines, and a lot of 
the stuff that's on the tie. Again, there's particle size to look at. Apparently when Macron Labs did that, they only did a certain type of a uh, analysis and it, it wasn't enough to determine that. Again, I really don't know that much about it other than, you know, nobody likes to hear that, but he could have picked up that tie at goodwill, okay, the day before. The rest of the suit certainly seemed not exactly Brooks Brothers. So who knows where he got that tie from? I know people don't like that. Yet the other day, someone posted a picture of some clip-on ties at Goodwill. So I, uh, I think people don't get... I know a number of years ago, my dad donated an old suit to his church. They had a thrift store. And we found out at a later point in time that a gentleman at the church passed away and his family did not have any money. And he was buried in my dad's suit. Just kind of a little, made us feel a little bit strange, but you know, we're happy that I guess certainly got put to good use. I just think we don't get it. You know, some people really don't have anything. And picking up a tie at a thrift shop or a donation, a lot of thrift shops, they'll just give you the stuff. You know, you don't have anything. We used to donate clothes all the time to the disabled veterans or different organizations. So I don't think that's completely out of the realm of possibility. I'm not saying that's more than 50% because it's not. But to say it could have never come from a garage sale, a thrift store, or anything. I, I don't think you can say that because we just don't know. Right. I agree with that 100%. Of course, I want it to be like his tie that he was working with in the factory that made all these rare electronic parts or something. Uh -huh. But, you know, going back to him obscuring his identity, you know, it seems like there's a good chance he put some hair dye in and maybe he picked this suit up at the thrift store in Portland, you know, cobbled it together from two different places and, you know, just planned on throwing those clothes out after the hijacking was done. Well, I think that's, that's a very good possibility because nothing seemed to really match. Like I said, the shoes I think were new. I think he bought new shoes because they, they were sort of a mini boot without being a jumping boot but they had a little bit of the same effect as they probably weren't going to fly off your feet. Like everybody says he was wearing loafers, but he really wasn't. So I think the shoes, just by the fact that they were so stylish as compared to the rest of the outfit, which totally was not stylish. Why are there so many suspects in this case? Well, because we don't know who he is. I mean, you, you know, every time, I mean, there's, if you, if you make a list of all the boxes that Cooper has to check, well, when you start going down, you get to like number four or five and go, all right, next, because nobody fits, nobody checks every box. So then you've got to move on to someone else, right? And let's face it, everybody, when I got into this, if somebody told me that I would be sitting here right now, I would have told them they were crazy, right? I had no 
idea that I was going to solve the case. I had no suspects. I've been saying I have absolutely no idea who D.B. Cooper is. Absolutely. And neither does anyone else. I don't think any of the suspects that people are looking at, I don't think any of them are Cooper. I really don't. Um, so we just need to move on to the next one, kind of like the FBI did. I mean, didn't they investigate like a thousand people? I mean, it's the same, the same idea, right? We're all playing junior detective. So this person was too short. This person had it was somewhere else. This person was this, whatever it is. Most of them, it's a height thing. That seems to knock a lot of people out as they're too short. So if you really start looking at all the boxes and start, I think you could actually narrow this down to not that big of a pool of people. The problem is we're 52 years after the fact. So getting information is going to be probably impossible. But when you knock out the non-smokers, when you knock out the people that are shorter, the people that don't have dark hair, the swarthy skin. I mean, that that's a that's an interesting, you don't have swarthy skin. So that that's a really interesting clue. I think when you start brown eyes, start narrowing down, and I think we're really, he had to have had some sky uh, diving experience. I, I don't believe that a 50-year-old man in 1971 said, I think I'm going to jump out of a plane and had absolutely no idea what to do. That's, I find that to be completely impossible. Absolutely impossible. Oh, I'm with you 100% on that. It's like, would you plan some heist where you have to escape by cave diving and you've never done no. that? Oh. No. No. And I mean, he did. He knew how to put the chute on. He looked at the packing cards which is very odd because that was not something that everybody would know about. Even guys who had been in the military, they were handed a parachute, right? They weren't delving into the, what's the canopy size, all this stuff. They're, they're getting at it, right? They're, they're jumping out of the plane. So that shows some experience. Now, at CooperCon, somebody brought a parachute. And one of the gentlemen who said he had never seen a parachute before put it on just to prove that he could figure out how to put it on and had no experience. My feeling on that is, well, that's great. But would you have jumped out of a plane based on what you just buckled up together? No. Would you have trusted yourself that you knew what you were doing? No, I, I don't think you would. So he definitely had some experience. Was he a super duper Ted Braden? skydiver i don't think so because possibly he picked the wrong shoot but again that is up for debate because we really don't know yeah it is interesting like you said if it's military he's probably not checking the packing card but if he's a civilian yeah he might want to check that packing card if he's done you know sport jumping but you know all the skydivers i've talked to about this said well the other guys brought their own parachute right that's what i would have done if i could get a parachute on a plane i would have brought my own instead of asking the fbi to bring me some but you know we have to i think we have to be careful about deciding what cooper would do based on what the copycats did 
it's that's looking at things backwards. The copycats were copying Cooper, not the other way around. So perhaps they learned from what he did. There's another, also another really interesting thing about the shoots that's completely conflicting information, that there are about four 302s that say he first asked for two parachutes. Now, the cockpit crew, being the professionals that they were, possibly they could have understood that to mean two sets of shoots, like a front and back, except later on in the, in the 302, it says that during the time they were hovering, waiting to land in Seattle, he quote unquote changed his mind and then asked for four shoots. Now that is not in the original statement given right after the hijacking. Notice the captain did not really give a statement. He just said he agreed with what the co-pilot said. He just confirmed it, basically. So what does that mean? Did Cooper really change his mind? And first he asked for two shoots, and then he came back and said, no, I want four. I mean, if that's, if that's true, I mean, what in the world does that mean? That, that stuff is tough for me because that whole process is just a giant game of telephone. Cooper said it this is. to someone, they relayed that to someone else who then radioed that in to someone else who wrote it down. I know. So it's, we never have like Cooper specifically said this. I mean, why didn't they record, record those interviews? I mean, just the nuances of language, if you think about it, that's what I don't like about texting. I always say, am I saying to you, hey, how are you? Or am I saying, hey, how are you? I mean, you don't know when it's the written word, right? You completely lose all sense of, how, how did I how did I say it? Which, by the way, I'm speaking it, obviously, you can infer a lot. So we're not getting any of those nuances. Did the flight attendant sound scared when they were, you know, Tina came back a couple of days later, and said she the more she thought about it, she had some more information. So and the FBI did visit her at her mother's home. And, you know, she was able to elaborate on some things. So yeah, it's really, really unfortunate that so much of what we have is probably really not even true. And we're going down all the wrong avenues. All right. I heard that uh, you looked into the Norman DeWinter story a little bit. <clears throat> well, I did kind of. That's a goofy story. But I did end up speaking with one of the gentlemen who knew him. He was not someone who was interviewed on any of the TV shows. But Basically, Norman DeWinter had nothing to do with D.B. Cooper. I don't think he had anything to do with Robert Rackstraw. I think he was just a character who was scamming some people for some free drinks. Like I said earlier, he, uh, according to this gentleman, he, they would go to a bar at night, and when it was time to pay for his drink, he'd pull out a $100 bill. Well, nobody would have change, so somebody would have to pay for his drink, and then he'd never pay him back. He was sleeping on people's sofas. He was apparently during the time of the hijacking was actually uh, living in a dorm room or in an apartment in uh, 
University of Oregon. So I don't think, I think this means nothing. I mean, it's a, it's a quirky story, but I don't think it really has anything to do with anything, at least according to him. This guy's backstory was he was from Switzerland or whatever, but people said his accent was kind of fake anyway, that he was traveling around trying to learn what living in America was really like, which explained why he was working at a fish factory, scaling fish or whatever. So do you think this is D.B. Cooper? Because I don't. Just... No, I don't think Norman Winter, uh, Norman De Winter is, <laughs> is Cooper or Rackstra. I was really intrigued by the fact that you sort of looked into it because when I read The Last Master Outlaw, that story stuck out to me so much. And my parents at the time lived just across the bridge from Astoria in Long Beach, Washington. So through the help of my dad, I tracked down an old timer in Astoria who remembered this Norman DeWinter story. Okay. Uh And he was like, is just a con man. And he actually spoke with uh, Tom Colbert about it and was like, you know, I told him the story and I didn't think it was this Rackstraw character and I thought it had nothing to do with D.B. Cooper, but it's not how he presented it. And really, why why did he need that story to be connected? I mean, I, I didn't really understand that either. I mean, it, it's a quirky story, but he didn't need that story for Rackstraw to be Cooper. No. I mean, it really had nothing to do with anything. So it was almost like filler or something. Um, just to prove that he was a con man. I mean, they made it seem like he extorted a bunch of money from people, but it doesn't even sound like that was the case. I think the people were hurt in a way. You know, he had them all excited. They were going to take this trip. I bet none of those people had been out of the country. You know, they were getting passports and maybe buying some new clothes or they were all ready to go. And then he just, you know, pulls the rug out from under them. So I think it was more that kind of thing that than really that he had borrowed large amounts of money from anyone because people probably didn't have large amounts of money to even give him. Although there is the odd part that he was trying to buy quite a large amount of radio equipment. And that, that was kind of a strange part of that story that... Um, as I recall, it was several hundred dollars worth. But the guy kind of backed out because word was getting around town that this guy wasn't good for it. So I, I don't know. I don't know what he's... And, and that could have been nothing more than he was going to scam them and go sell it somewhere or whatever. Does Cooper survive his jump? Oh, yes. I, I think... Somebody would have found something. I mean, I know that wild animals and all that kind of stuff, but where's the parachute? I mean, if he landed and he was deceased, the parachute was still attached to his skeleton, I guess. Um, I mean, a lot of people were looking for this guy. Well, they weren't looking for him. They were looking for the money. I mean, there was a big reward. I mean, people wanted to find that money. So... There's certainly no indication that he died. No, there was really not much water. So yes, there's a very small chance he could have ended up in some body of water, I guess. 
um, or in a well, he could have fallen right in somebody's well or something. But, you know, these are kind of the one in a million type things. So I, I do think he survived. And that's not just because I want him to. I don't, I don't think Cooper's a hero or anyone we need to look up to as the guy who stuck it to the man or anything. I, I think he's a criminal. Um, but I do think he survived. I think he survives the jump. I mean, it, it seems like he has some sort of parachute experience. And if you're jumping out of a plane with a parachute, and let's say you've had one or two previous jumps, what are the odds that you pull the ripcord? Extremely high. What are the odds that your parachute <laughs> deploys? Extremely high. Um, and if he is hurt or killed on impact on his landing and pulls the ripcord, he's found immediately. He's found that next morning. Oh, here's a parachute in the trees. There's him, his body, his mystery bag, and his briefcase. Yes. But do you think he would have carried? See, I think he threw the briefcase out. Uh, I'm just not picturing him jumping with all this, you know, the money bag. And, and we still don't know, was the money bag attached to his waist or was it a drag bag? We don't know that. But I, I don't know what I would have done. I would have ripped all the insides out of the briefcase. I would have tossed the briefcase just empty, waited a couple minutes, and then tossed the rest of the stuff. So this way, if the briefcase was found, nobody would think anything of it because it wouldn't have had the, the battery and the, you know, the dynamite slash road flares, whatever they were, which is another thing that bothers me. Why wasn't Cooper wearing a watch? Or was he? I guarantee you every red-blooded American man back in 1971 was wearing a wristwatch. Tina didn't see one on his left hand. How did he know what time it was? He was saying, you know, he five o'clock was his deadline. He was like, where's, where's my money? Where are my shoots? How did he know it was after five o'clock? That is a good point. I always picture him in my head as wearing a watch, but it doesn't ever call that out. Well, if the watch was on his right hand, then I think he was left-handed, which that really narrows down the pool of suspects. Because especially back then, they tried to get kids in school, you know, if you were left-handed, especially in Catholic school, they made you write with your right hand. So that is strange to me. I don't know. Was there some sort of a clock inside the briefcase? I mean, what would be the purpose of that when all you had to do was slip on a watch? So that I think is, again, that's one of those quirky in the weeds kind of uh, things that I come up with, but I think it's important. I think men wore watches. Definitely. And it would be something you would want to have doing that operation. Of course. I mean, think about him getting to the airport. Was he on a bus? Was he in a taxi? Did someone drop him off? I mean, you were like timing it to the minute. I got to get there. We're in traffic. What time is it? I mean, yeah, there were clocks at the airport. But still, you know, he waited till the last minute to get there, which is a whole other weird thing. You know, he gets there and he's almost acting like, can I get on your flight? Like he's not even sure he can get on. So just everything about it is just off. It's 
non-criminal behavior to me. Do you think he chose that specific flight and had that planned? Or do you think he was waiting for the right time and right opportunity? Are this going to work out? Is there any chance that he wasn't going to carry out the hijacking on that plane? Well, you know, he did say that, you know, it fit. I don't remember the exact quote to Tina that this flight fit his time and place or whatever. So he kind of indicated that. I mean, you could you could think about that he did a dry run before this just to kind of get the lay of the land, the plane kind of. But if you did a dry run, why would you pick the day before Thanksgiving to actually do the real crime? I think Thanksgiving would have been even a better day. I'm sure they had a, a limited flight schedule, but that just wouldn't have been the day I would have picked if I had already scoped out this whole scenario. Because if I had done it earlier, the day before Thanksgiving is a different animal. I would have, I would have stuck, you know, apples to apples. If I did it on October 15th, well, then maybe I would have tried it again on October 20th or whatever. I wouldn't have picked a holiday. So I, I really don't think he had some connection to that part of the country. I mean, you know, he was wearing a raincoat. And the FBI, as the FBI pointed out, he was dressed like someone who lived in the Pacific Northwest. That's why I don't think he flew in from the East Coast. First of all, where was he getting all this money from? For someone who was so desperate for money, he's flying in from, you know, those were expensive flights back then. And myself growing up at the East Coast, by Thanksgiving, it was cold. And there was a blizzard in, in Pennsylvania that weekend. So he was dressed like someone who lived in that part of the country. So he had some familiarity with it. Obviously, he knew where the Air Force Base was. He knew where Tacoma was. I've been to Seattle a few times. I have no idea where Tacoma is. Um, so he definitely seemed to be familiar with what was going on in that part of the country. Is there anything I didn't ask you? That you're dying to oh, talk about? let me think. Um, well, the only thing I would just encourage people who were not around in 1971 to really look into that time period and kind of get a sense of the social upheaval and everything with Vietnam, the whole drug era. Um, this guy was really a... He was kind of a fish out of water, I think. And I think the whole sociological sense of this case is really, really important. Because I think this guy was in World War II. I think he probably served his country. And they let him down in a lot of ways. And I think he was probably bothered by everything that was happening at that point. And... He saw the news reports and all those guys going to Cuba. They made the fatal mistake of still being on the plane when it landed. And he just came up with the brilliant idea that if I'm not on the plane, they can't catch me. And I do think there was a somewhat suicidal aspect to it because I really don't think he wanted to go to jail. There's so, definitely a know. suicidal aspect to the hijacking. Yeah. 
I'm not sure that he even thought he was going to get away with it. I think he was surprised that he did. I think, you know, year, years later, he's definitely surprised he got away with it. That's why I don't think he's confessing or calling up authors or, I mean, it, everybody else got caught. Why in the world would you mess with success? I, I just don't think you would unless you're just, this guy was not the Zodiac where, you know, he's taunting the police or anything. I, I don't, this guy doesn't. Nothing about his personality seems that way to me. None of the I letters can, belong to him? I don't think so. And one thing we haven't discussed is why was the money never spent? Because I don't think it was. I don't think the money was spent either. So I, to me, if he... Oh, go ahead, Pat. I was going to say, if he, if he was so desperate for money on November 24th and he lost it, he was still desperate for money on November 25th. So I don't know what he did after that. I don't, there's no evidence he could, he tried some other crime, but I think some of that money would have turned up somewhere. It would have. Somehow. I don't think he altered the money. I don't think he knew anything about laundering money. I mean, who knows about laundering money? That's, that's a whole level of gangster type behavior that the average middle-aged guy knows nothing about. And even if the money is laundered, that money is going to come up somewhere else. Of course. I, I don't I don't know why people think when you're laundering money like it's going away somewhere. No, it's not. We've we've seen breaking bad, right? We know how all that scenario works. How and it is. It's just filtered through the system in a different way. And yes, I guess he could have gone to Canada, but eventually all that money just it comes back. So I think he lost the money. I think it was a, it was a success, but it wasn't. Yeah. The money so is really interesting. Did you hear the episode I did with Arthur Friedberg, the numismatist? Yes. yes. You know, when he said the idea that you have $10,020 bills entering circulation and not a single one of them ever comes up in a flagged transaction, he's just like the, the, the numbers on that don't make sense. At yeah. least one and, of them, and they were would. collectible too. Yes. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I, I think he's right. The money was not spent, which means one of two things: either he lost the money, or he got scared and did something with it. Did he burn it? Is it in an attic? I, I don't think so. Why would you hold on to it? So one of two things happened, but the money's long gone. I, I don't think it's sitting in somebody's attic. Boy, that would be to cool to wake up tomorrow and read the news. $175,000 of D.B. Cooper's money is found in an attic. Well, you know, the way things are in this case with that. And, and yet we never know who, how it got there. It's somewhere weird, like like in a crawl space in an office building or, you know, like someplace where we don't know who occupy ever occupy that place so then the money is there but there's no person attached to it that would really make you crazy right that would be how this would go <laughs> it would it would just pretty much add up to everything else L let me ask you this what happens to the vortex when this case is solved i mean you touched on it a little bit earlier like in this scenario everyone goes with it there's no people that are like well you know i still think it's kenny christensen 
we have definitive proof. The answer is here. We find out tomorrow. What happens to the vortex then? Well, I like to paraphrase Humphrey Bogart when he said, we'll always have Paris. I say, we'll always have Tina Barr. Um, we'll never figure that one out, right? That I think, unless you actually found the real man, D.B. Cooper, and he actually told you, I, I don't think there's really any way to figure that out. Um, yeah, I mean, it'll dry up, I guess, just kind of like all these other cases that are eventually have been solved. Uh, people will lose interest because there's nothing really new to talk about. Um, somebody asked me the other day, what case are you going to move on to next? I said, nothing, nothing, I'm done. This is, I'm one and done with Cooper. I don't think we're going to solve it anytime soon, but I think it can be. And then we can all move on with our lives and find something else to do, right? I think most people in the vortex aren't moving on to a different, onto a different thing. Oh, no, they're not. Well, no. I mean, you mean like if it was solved? If it's solved. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's the vortex is weird because it's not, it's not a bunch of true crime fans. No. A lot of the people are not true crime fans at all, myself included. I can't really listen to that because it makes me angry. I'm like, I I can't believe they did that. I'm going to go round up a posse and I'm going to get that guy. Like, it just makes me angry. But Cooper isn't, isn't it is true crime, obviously, but it's a completely different thing. It's not about, it's not so much about victims or justice, like you were saying, it's you have this criminal that a lot of guys look up to think of as sort of a James Bond type, or maybe he was sticking uh -huh. it to the man. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. Got at it. he got away with it. Now, I think actually it's an obsession. I think in a way it's, it's kind of sick that why are we all spending so much time? I mean, I find myself no matter where I am, something like pops in my head about it that I didn't think about before. I've literally woken up in the middle of the night thinking about D.B. Cooper. This is not normal behavior, right? That there's something obsessive about this case. I have, I find myself, no matter who I'm talking to, somehow this gets worked into the conversation. It's just, I personally have never been involved in anything like this before. I don't know if you have. I've never Definitely looked at not. another case like this. I've never dreamt about a case. I've never become friends with a bunch of people that I don't know purely because we, we want to know who Dan Cooper was. It is. It, it's quite a bit obsessive. And, and I do think a lot about the lady who was working on the uh, Golden State Killer case and she she died remember in the course of writing that book because she became so obsessed that she was taking some sort of pills to stay awake and all sorts of things now i'm not implying that any of us are have gone that crazy but it's something you just can't i know sometimes in the morning i'll come in and the first thing out of my mouth to my husband is not good morning it's something cooper related I mean, that's, this is, it's weird. It, it, is. it is so weird. And when I first got into this, I was going to name my show, the DB Cooper podcast, because that's how creative I am. 
but everyone kept talking about the vortex the vortex once you get sucked in you can't escape and you know at the time i didn't believe that of course i could just drop this whenever i want and i'm not going to become one of you guys i'm just doing this show because i'm interested in it and now i'm a hundred percent sucked in i've spent you know countless hours reading about db cooper or i think about all the time like I'll just get my phone out and instinctively just go to the drop zone and read what's there. And, you know, I've been doing that for years and years now. And it's like, it's just the same discussions over and over and over. And, and why can't I let this go? I have legitimately told people like, oh yeah, the end of 2021, that's the last bit of me in the vortex. And then I'm out and I can't, I can't let it go. It really is like an addiction. Like it is, it is. when I think I'm out, I'll hear from somebody else like, oh, did you hear this new book? Or did you hear they're doing this or they're looking into this lead? And I'm a hundred percent sucked right back into it. I know. Just because I like movies, you know, the famous quote, just when I think I'm out of it, they pull me back in. Right. The Godfather. I mean, that's exactly how it is and I some days I tell myself I'm not going to look at my phone but then I of course I do because I've always missed something then you know I don't want to miss anything I think we need not a new so psychological profile of Cooper although I do think we need a new real psychological profile of him I think we need a psychological profile of the people who are involved in this case not that I'm implying that we, you know, are crazy or anything, but there's something here that is very, very strange. And it's very hard to other people who are not sucked into it. It's very hard for them to understand. And I really wonder how many spouses or friends are sitting around going, what's happened to my husband, wife, you know, sister, brother, that it, it's just weird. It's like, that's all I really want to do is look into this case. And that's, it seems unhealthy at, on some level, because even if we do solve it, so what? I mean, so what? So what? You and I have no vested interest in this. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And like I said, there's no closure. Nobody's going to jail. Nobody cares. There's no families. Yeah, you might get a book deal and a Netflix special. So you might make a lot of money. So there's that. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who he was. The FBI doesn't care anymore. They've closed the case. And I, there is no money to be made in this. I mean, the you people who that? have made money aren't really interested in Cooper. Maybe Jeffrey Gray's book probably did the best. And I, uh-huh. you know, I don't think he made a trillion dollars off that. He got probably paid pretty handsomely, but he was a, a successful writer before that. Yeah. Um, you know, none of the... Cooper authors I know are rolling in dough from their work in this. Most of them have spent way more money on this than they've ever made. But they haven't solved the case. I do think if somebody definitively solves the case, I do think that they are going to make a lot of money off of it. Actually, I do. That's why, you know, it's, this is a very, I have found the group, I've made some really nice friends in this. So if nothing else, wasting all this time, I have met some great people that I never, ever, ever would have crossed paths with. So that's 
been the positive. I'm trying to look at the, the bright side of this. On the other hand, there is a competitive nature to it because people do want to solve this case. And so people, they'll help you. I have found to a point, some people will help you no matter what. And those are the people I consider to be my closest friends in the vortex. There's some other people that they will help you, but then they won't. And I think that is because there is an expectation of perhaps not fortune, but certainly fame, I would say. Uh, I think whoever solves this case will at least have more than 15 minutes of fame. Well, in the vortex, certainly. But I just wonder how much do people outside the vortex really care? I mean, if it gets solved tomorrow, I think it will be one quick news story. This is who it was. And and most people will, will just move on. I mean, one of my coworkers joked or will tell people like, oh yeah, Darren knows everything about D.B. Cooper except the one thing you'd like to know, which is who is D.B. Cooper. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it's like, that's totally true. I think there could be people want their name attached to it. Pat Boland is the one who solved the D.B. Cooper case. Yes, it has I, a ring to it. It definitely it? does. And there's pride and I did it and nobody else could yes. in 50 years. And I solved this thing. I definitely know people who are, who want that to be them for sure. Yes. But I don't know if, even if I solve the case and I write a killer book about it, I don't think, I mean, maybe you could sell the movie rights to it. So maybe there is some money. I, I think, in solving well, which, it. which were you on the net? Which special were you in? Was that the Netflix special? Uh, Netflix and then the most recent history channel one. Okay. Um, Oh, I think there's a, a very good mini series out of this if if it was solved. I think there's movie rights. Sure, they're doing a movie about Tina. So I don't understand what that movie's about because nothing really happened. I mean, there was no intrigue, nobody got hurt, nobody was wrestling a gun on the floor or any kind of so I'm finding that gonna that's gonna be kind of curious to see how they how they make that movie. I don't think she would go along with a completely fictitious movie. So I don't know. That will be very curious to see how that is. No, I think there is, uh, yeah, I guess everybody maybe wants to be famous for a little bit, or certainly it would be, you'd go down in the history books as having solved the case. I, I, I have a moral dilemma though, I feel like with this case, in that if you kind of knew who it was, 90%, 95%, but there was still that very, very small chance it wasn't. Do you really release the person's name? You know, people have families that are still around. So I kind of struggle with that too. I, I know that doesn't seem to bother a lot of other people. And a lot of the people who've been released as suspects, they were kind of creepy characters anyway. So I don't mind so much that you're outing someone who was, you know, a known criminal and had served time and possibly murdered their stepfather or whatever they did. So I don't really have a problem with that. But if it's someone who is just your great uncle, who you remember fondly as being a decent guy who loved his family, and for whatever reason, he kind of went crazy and did this thing, which was obviously a crime, but he's no longer around. What is the moral and what are the moral and ethical implications of that? Is it important that the world knows about it? 
if it kind of blows up his family. So those are the kind of things I think about. But how much can it blow up a family at this point? So Cooper's, you know, at the youngest, he would be 85 years old today. Mm-hmm. At the absolute youngest, let's say he's 85 years old. Odds are he's dead. And odds are his kids are older now. If he had children, yeah. they yeah. would be, you know, probably in their 50s or 60s at this point in time. How much is that going to blow up your family? If it comes out that my grandpa was D.B. Cooper, well, that'll explain why I, why I had why I had this weird obsession with the case, but I don't think it's going to have much impact other than maybe at a family reunion and be like, can you believe that, you know, Dave was D.B. Cooper? Well, could be. And I think some people would be excited to know that great grandpa was D.B. Cooper. I think it depends on these circumstances because some of these suspects are people that disappeared and abandoned their family. And obviously there's a huge amount of hurt and resentment in that kind of a scenario. I think that type of thing coming out in public, if it turned out that the father who abandoned his wife and children went on to become this notorious criminal, had another family somewhere else. I think all that thing, I do think it would be very hurtful. I I do. I think it's case specific. Other people would say, well, I I always knew that guy. He was a character, uncle so-and-so. So I think it would just depend on who it is. Yeah, it's interesting. It's something I've thought about a lot in doing this show and letting people, you know, promote their their theories or their ideas on who Cooper was. And, you know, my attitude has always sort of been if it's already out in the public a little bit, and especially mm-hmm. if the person you're accusing is already passed on, uh, that's a little bit easier. I had a an interview I canceled recently because the guest was making some claims that weren't in the public yet. And some of them were about people that were alive. So I was like, Hey, I can't be the one who's going to get this out there first. So there is definitely something to think about in that. And, you know, like you said, it's totally case by case. Uh, Bradley Cooper, who was one of uh, the first guests I had on the show who said his dad was DB Cooper. You know, I talked to one of his sisters and, you know, she had a completely different version okay. of of that story. So it was like, it, even in one family, one child's going to see something and react to it completely differently. Of course. Than the other kids. So, yeah, it's something I've thought about and been careful about. But, I mean, luckily, most of the the big suspects, their names have already been floated out there. And well, and like I said, a lot of them away. were kind of creeps anyway, or they confessed. I mean, if you confess, well, that's off the table, right? I mean, if you're Gossett or uh, can't even think, uh, what's his name? Dwayne Weber, any of these people. I mean, if you, well, then I guess you get what you deserve, right? Um, I, I'm not thinking how many people you've had on that actually were probably totally innocent of something. I mean, there's a couple of new suspects that are, I don't know about. Um, like Vince Peterson. Yeah. Who totally was not D.B. Cooper, in my opinion. I, I don't think there's no, there's no motive. I, I, don't, I don't think his name should have been put out in public. 
because there really was nothing connecting him other than a very tenuous connection with that tie. And I think tenuous being the operative word. So I would not have released that name. But What do you think of Milton Vordal as a suspect? Well, first of all, I think he's probably too old. And he looked older. I mean, he wasn't, you know, the Tom Cruise who doesn't ever age kind of guy. Um, I've yet to see a motive for him. I've yet to see a motive. I don't think anybody was jumping out of that airplane to pad their 401k or to put money away for a rainy day or to, you know, I lost some money in the stock market. I just don't see that. There was no indication of anything with him that he was in any financial trouble that I'm aware of. Now, again, there could be a lot of things going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. There could be a whole lot more information, but I'm just not seeing uh, anything. And, it, and if you take away the tie, there's zero to connect him to the case. Had no military service, no indication he ever skydived. I mean, he doesn't really check any boxes. You know, he's too old. I, maybe he's the right height. Maybe that's the only thing that you can box you can check. But without the tie, you have nothing. And since this would never pass any chain of custody, I mean, the tie, who knows? That tie's been everywhere. So I don't, I don't think it's him, but other people do. So that's okay. Are there any, are there any known suspects that you say there could be a chance? Yes, but I'd rather not say who that is. <laughs> it's a mildly known suspect. I'll say that. All it's, right. It, it's not one of the quote unquote usual suspects. It's not someone completely unknown, but it's not a popular suspect. Okay. It's interesting. It is interesting. But. As far as the the main players, I don't think they are. And there's really not enough evidence that they are. So, I, I think it's annoying that we have a few suspects that keep getting promoted in like the Netflix or History Channel stuff. Oh, like, it's ridiculous. Why do we keep rehashing Rackstraw? Why do we keep rehashing McCoy? I mean, those two in particular... The FBI had both of them in custody. If there was any single thing that they could pin Flight 305 on them, they would have done that. Of course. Like they really wanted to spend 45 years right. on this case and not solve it. No, of course they did. I mean, I've noticed it seems like they're even using some of the same video footage on some of these shows. It's like they're just recycling the same old stuff, yet people people believe it because they only show obviously the one side of the story. I mean, they don't show, although it was really priceless when Tina was on and looked at the picture and said, you know, that's not him. But that wasn't even the first time she'd done that. I, know, I mean, this, you know better than I do because you've been on these shows. I mean, this stuff, it's all scripted. It's all made up. I mean, anybody who thinks these reality shows are reality is not living in reality, right? They're, they're all made up. I mean, they're telling you what to say. They're all scripted. They're, uh, it, it's just somebody's idea of what 
they think people want to hear. So that that's what the show is all about. So there's really not, you know, we need a really, really good documentary that, that shows what happened or a book that's not suspect specific because now Jeffrey Gray and Bruce's book, I mean, they're pretty out of date because of all the new information with the FBI release. So there does need to be a book that's sort of the definitive Cooper book. Well, Dr. Edwards' book I think someone is, is not suspect one. driven and it's pretty new. I'm sorry, what is uh, Dr. Edwards' book, The Mathematician? Yes. But very technical, yeah. very technical. So, and he doesn't place much on the tie. He seems to think that's not really a good piece of evidence from what I recall from the book, which is just kind of interesting. But hopefully Tom K will have some new information at CooperCon about the tie, I think. And the money, supposedly. Some new interesting tidbits about that money. Tina Barr money. Not, and you're going to be the speaking other money. at CooperCon as well. Who will be? You are, right? Oh, me. Yes. Yes, <laughs> I will be. Making my date, my, probably my one and only CooperCon appearance. But I'm excited. It'll, it's going to be fun. Hopefully we have some interesting, well, I know we have some inter interesting things to share from a female perspective. So. That will be awesome. Well, while it's on my mind, I want to talk about the the Netflix versus the History Channel thing real quick. When I did that Netflix show, they just sat me down and asked me questions and everything I said, that was my answer. Sure, they like cut it to fit the show a little bit, but it was, they just asked me my opinion. I wasn't fed anything. I wasn't told to say anything. I wasn't told to rephrase something. The History Channel show that was like, I was told I was going to have that same freedom and that it wasn't going to be suspect driven. And then as we got closer to the date, it changed and changed. And right before I left, they sent me a script and I was like, am I supposed to memorize this and answer the questions just like this? And they said, oh, no, 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 not at all. This is just sort of a guideline so you can see how the interview would go. And I was like, okay, that's cool. And then I get down there. I sit in this room to do my interview. They ask me like the first question and I answer. And then the next question and they're like, well, can you rephrase the way you answered that a little bit? And then I did. And by the end of that interview, they were literally telling me like, okay, now say this. And then I would repeat that. And I just sat there and I was so angry at myself. Mm -hmm that I got roped into this, that like I, they bought me for a hotel or two nights at a hotel and two plane tickets. Like that was how much money I got paid for that. And I, I, j I was so mad. And I was actually uh, at the hotel with, uh, with Dave and Drew Beeson, uh, Dave Feudman and, and Drew Beeson. And I literally, like, I couldn't sleep that night. I was so sick with myself. And then the next morning we all, met together for coffee and they both said the exact same thing like they just it started out one way and it eventually became okay now you say this now you say this it was like why even have me there if i'm just going to read a script well because you're a prop and they need to rename that 
I guess it shouldn't be called a history channel because so much for real history. Now, a lot of this is quite disingenuous and um, that's why I think don't believe everything you hear, don't believe everything you read. But it hasn't helped the case any, that's for sure. Uh, because everybody thinks it's McCoy or Rackstraw, pretty much. I mean, just of the the people that I've spoken to who know nothing about the case, they all say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know who it is. It's the... But that's fine, because let them think what they want, and we know otherwise. Or I've got a new wild theory that's going to blow your mind. Cooper never jumped. Oh, dear. <laughs> hey, there's a talk about weird TV shows. It was called... Um, Tales of the Unexpected. Now, this is there were a lot of shows that copy the the Cooper case. Um, it's an it's a British talk about low budget, cheesy kind of a Twilight Zone type thing. It's on YouTube, but yes, that was the whole. It was it was the crew. It was the the crew. They yeah, it was wild. No, that didn't happen either. And don't tell me that those young ladies were involved because I don't I don't do well with that that makes me mad because they were not they were heroes they really were I mean if Flo had flipped out if Tina had fallen apart this could have turned out a lot differently than it did if that was a real bomb and, right. they did and not. of course the FBI looked into them real you know of just course. gave it a cursory glance no, it's it's silly. It well, it doesn't even make sense. I mean, what you know, by the time you cut everybody in, there really wouldn't have been that much money. Would all these people have given up their careers, gone to prison, possibly the electric chair or whatever? I mean, for what? You know, thirty thousand dollars. Even back then, I mean, by the time you cut everybody in, no, it's no. And it's everyone crazy. I've talked to that worked in the airline industry in the sixties and seventies. They all say the same thing. They were very proud to work there. It was an amazing job. They were paid very well. And they all loved it. Of course. I no. haven't talked to anyone that's like, oh, so angry at the airlines the whole time. No, 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 no. It that's that's like a no. It's not even worth discussing. And I don't didn't happen. At least that we can all agree on, right? Pretty yes. <laughs> Well, Pat, I think we covered just about all of it, right? We did. It's been so much fun. I really appreciate you having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. If people want to want to argue with you about Cooper or say, "Hey, I think you got this right," or "You're totally wrong on that," is there somewhere they can find you? Well, they can find me on the uh, Eric Ulysses DB Cooper Mystery Group Facebook page. Um, don't argue with me too much, but yes, I don't <laughs> mind arguing. I like to argue, right? I'm an Italian girl from New Jersey. I can argue with anybody. Um, but yes, you can find me there 100%. I'll answer any questions or take comments or criticisms. And should we be expecting a book from you soon? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about writing about some things about that I've learned in this. I'm um, I'm putting it all together in my head of how what I would write about. Like I said, I'm really interested in the psychological aspects of this, how it fit in with the the times. And hopefully I'll come up with a fabulous suspect to write about. But who knows? We'll see. 
Hell yeah, I look forward to it, Pat. Well, okay. thanks for coming thanks on. So I really appreciate it. All right, take care. Thank you so much. You can find Pat on the D.B. Cooper Mystery Group on Facebook if you'd like to chat with her about Norjack. Do you know who D.B. Cooper was? Is there an aspect of this case we're all getting wrong? Can you prove a suspect was innocent? Hit us up. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or email us at dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Pat Boland for gifting me a great episode title. Thank you to Russell Colbert for gifting me his old set of sounding rods. Thank you to Darian Osadich for letting us play his tune. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to the Cooper Vortex. Jack the plane, so we were told Then he jumped into the cold As a burn and a cigarette In the air, the stage is set Polite and kind, the people say It's time to make his getaway This is how the story goes About the money and the man D.B. Cooper, they call me now Catch me if you can Roll up in his cold-built tight He's got enough to change his life Where he landed, no one knows But from his tale, a legend grows Was a cold, dark, rainy night As he walked, he saw light Held his cash close to his side just needs to catch a ride This is how the story goes About the money and the man D.B. Cooper, they call me now Catch me if you can Out. There's 
story has been told Davy Cooper's done running now He was 80 years old 